Fiction Machine is a website written by me, Grant Watson, exploring the making of interesting films and having a look at how good movies are built by the talented artists who put them together. You can find the essays at www.fictionmachine.com where a new essay is uploaded at least once a month. What you're listening to now is the podcast version of that same website, so it provides the same information, just in an audio format, so that you can listen to it without having to waste your valuable iMeets on computers, tablets, mobile telephone screens. Fiction Machine is funded by the generous donations of the Fiction Mechanics via Patreon. It's a crowdsourcing website, so for more information on how you might be able to help fund the writing and presentation of Fiction Machine, follow the link at the top of the Fiction Machine website, www.fictionmachine.com. But first, it's time for us to have a look at this month's essay, A Fuzzy Blue Charles Dickens, The Muppet Christmas Carol, 1843, Christmas in England was undergoing a process of change and re-evaluation. Its core purpose as a Christian festival remained central, however it was rapidly developing a broader significance as a more commercial, family-oriented holiday, the kind we're familiar with today. The tradition of placing a Christmas tree had only just gained popularity in Great Britain, for example, following its well-reported use by Queen Victoria and her German husband, Prince Albert. 1843 was also the first year in which Christmas cards were sold and distributed as a holiday tradition. In the middle of this renewed period of interest in all things Christmas-related, London publisher Chapman and Hall released A Christmas Carol, a festive ghost story written by the popular novelist Charles Dickens. The book was an immediate bestseller, selling out of its 60,000 copy print run in a single day. Its imagery and its setting rapidly came to define the British ideal of a Christmas holiday. And A Christmas Carol has remained popular since its publication and has subsequently been adapted for theatre, opera, television and, of course, motion pictures. The first film adaptation was Scrooge, or Marley's Ghost, a short film produced in London in 1901. It was followed by further short and feature treatments, at least 20 different direct adaptations between 1908 and 2009, not to mention further related films and parodies over the decades. Despite a wide variety of Christmas Carol films to choose from, one of the best, and surprisingly one of the most accurate, is Brian Henson's 1992 film The Muppet Christmas Carol, in which most of the cast are played by puppets. The Muppet shouldn't need an introduction. The name was coined by puppeteer and creative artist Jim Henson purely as a marketing device to distinguish his puppeteering efforts from those of his competitors. His anarchic, self-aware take and his likeable characters, beginning with Kermit the Frog and Ralph the Dog before expanding through the likes of Sesame Street, became an American institution and an international sensation. It was The Muppet Show, produced in England in ITC, by ITC I should say, <laughs> and then syndicated on American television that broke the Muppet characters through the pop culture stratosphere. Over five seasons, the Muppet characters hosted their own variety show with a string of famous actors, singers and performers guest starring in each episode. While Kermit the Frog was already a household name via Sesame Street, he was joined by a raft of other popular characters including the volatile Miss Piggy, the struggling comedian Fozzie Bear and the blue furry performance artist Gonzo the Great. And with the Muppets' popularity at their height, ITC head Lou Grade negotiated to launch the characters into their own movie franchise. The Muppet Movie was released in 1979, The Great Muppet Caper followed in 1981, 
Following a third film in 1984, The Muppets Take Manhattan, the Muppet characters slipped onto the back burner in favour of other Henson projects, including Fraggle Rock, The Storyteller, and lavish fantasy films, including The Labyrinth and Witches. They continued to appear in a number of TV specials, but the company's focus and Jim Henson's own attention were for the most part focused elsewhere. But even during the late 1980s, there were still plans developed for a fourth Muppet feature film. However, none of these plans were fully developed. From 1985, Jim Henson and screenwriter Jerry Jewell developed the cheapest Muppet movie ever made, in which Gonzo wastes an entire film's budget in the first five minutes, leaving the remainder of the film to be shot in a cheaper and shoddier fashion as it went along. That project continued to develop through the 1980s, and it was even considered for production by Walt Disney Pictures as recently as 2009. Then, in May 1990, Jim Henson unexpectedly died. A persistent bout of influenza had resulted in bacterial pneumonia. He died in the early morning of 16th of May 1990 from multiple organ failure. He was 53 years old. Jim Henson's death came in the middle of a long negotiation for Walt Disney Pictures to buy out the Muppet franchise part and parcel. The initial impetus for the sale was to simply enable Jim Henson to focus on other film and television projects without spending all of his time shepherding the Muppet characters. With his death, that impetus was gone, and after further negotiations between the two companies, Henson's widow and children elected not to proceed with the sale. His son Brian Henson said, In hindsight, there were all sorts of problems there. The fact that we had an enormous legal firm representing the family and kind of wanting to protect the family in a weird way, and Disney had a huge team of lawyers. At a certain point, it almost felt like regardless of what the family and Michael Eisner, Disney's CEO, wanted to have happen, it wasn't going to happen with these armies of lawyers. By the time we were looking at a deal that was getting close to closable, it just wasn't going to work anymore. Everyone thinks it must have been a very hard decision not to go forward with the merger, but in a lot of ways it was actually the easier decision. While Walt Disney Pictures did not wind up purchasing the Muppets, they did retain a distribution deal for Muppet Productions that the elder Henson had signed before his death. And that led both Disney and the Jim Henson Company to collaborate on a new Muppet movie, the first in eight years. That new Muppet film was The Muppet Christmas Carol. I needed to do something quite different with the Muppets, said Brian Henson, because three movies with the Muppets playing themselves in the real world felt like a lot. And my dad was even thinking, I'm not really sure what to do next. So that's why we thought, let's take them in a whole new direction. I'd been working in London, and I wanted to do something that was richer and more fantastic than the traditional Muppet movies. And so we had this idea of Muppet Christmas Carol, wherein we could design the whole world, and it was Dickensian, and yet it was still Muppets. In previous films, he explained, the Muppets played themselves. In this film, the Muppets play parts. The characters operate on two levels. First, they're the recognisable Muppet characters that we all know and whose actions and relationships we can anticipate. And then there are the characters they're playing. Jerry Jewell, a handsome veteran who had written for the Muppets since Sam and Friends back in 1955, wrote the film's screenplay. He said, When this project was first discussed, it was so easy to think in terms of parody. So rather than let the Muppets ride roughshod over Dickens, I went back to the novel and decided it would be rotten of us to belittle the quality of one of the greatest stories of all time. I was determined to preserve the intent and honest emotions of the piece while overlaying the Muppet brand of craziness. Casting the Muppets in specific roles was a logical progression for the characters. Since the 1960s, the Muppet characters had occupied a strange sort of liminal existence, clearly fictional, yet broadly treated as actual people. I mean, take Kermit the Frog. He's a green felt glove puppet, yet he's attended presidential inaugurations, he's hosted Late Line and The Tonight Show, and he remains the only fictional character to deliver a lecture at Cambridge University. Collectively, we all know he's not real, but we kind of treat him like he is. 
The strange Muppet existence, somewhere between fiction and reality, reached fresh heights in November 1990 when CBS aired a Disney-produced special, The Muppets Celebrate Jim Henson. At one point, Gonzo points out the puppeteers operating below the Muppets, to which the other Muppet characters react with alarm. Gonzo then proceeds to demonstrate how running around the room forces the puppeteers to run around as well. It's kind of like self-aware at the same time as maintaining these fictional characters. So for Brian Henson, shifting the Muppets into story-specific characters was a pronounced step away from what his father had produced. However, in practice, it's not too far removed from what Jim Henson had established and previously brought to life. Another part of why The Muppet Christmas Carol feels like such a smooth progression for the Muppet characters is the extent to which the film reuses old talent. The screenplays by Jerry Jewell. The songs were composed by Paul Williams, whose work on the Muppet movie had earned an Academy Award nomination for The Rainbow Connection. The entire Muppet Show troupe of puppeteers returned for the film, save for Richard Hunt, who was too ill from AIDS-related illnesses at the time to participate. He died in January 1992. The Muppet Christmas Carol is dedicated to both him and Jim Henson. While many of the novel's characters were adopted by Muppets, the central role of Ebenezer Scrooge was written for a human actor. In this respect, The Muppet Christmas Carol does chart a major new course, since the previous three Muppet films had all focused on Kermit as their protagonist, with humans playing supporting parts. In many respects, it's a deliberate inversion. Rather than enter the human world, the Muppets invite a human into theirs. The role of Ebenezer Scrooge was played by Michael Caine. While other actors had been considered for the role, including David Warner, George Carlin and Ron Moody, Caine remained Brian Henson's first and only real choice. Caine said, Over the years, I'd watched all of my friends appear on The Muppet Show, and I tried not to mind that I was never invited. But of course, in the end, I got the big part. I had a wonderful time doing it, he said, although I found it a very long process because continuity is a nightmare. I loved working with the Muppeteers, who are all very gentle souls and really do inhabit their characters, and I found that I didn't have to change my style as an actor at all. Working with the Muppets was just like working with real people. Michael Caine is a rare actor who fully understands how to act opposite Muppets. He, alongside Charles Grodin as Nicky Holiday in The Great Muppet Caper, represents the gold standard because he treats them as human actors and never reduces his performance to mugging for the camera or overacting in the belief that it's all just children's entertainment. Later Muppet co-stars, including Jason Segel and Amy Adams in 2011's The Muppets, really could have learnt from their example. The Muppet Christmas Carol commenced shooting at London's Shepperton Studios on a $12 million budget, although some reports had the final cost of the film stretching to around $15 million. The film was shot over a nine-week period from June to August 1992, leaving an extremely truncated schedule for post-production. The street sets, designed by Val Strozovec, used forced perspective, with buildings and shop fronts in the background being considerably shorter than those in the foreground. Straight lines and right angles were avoided as much as possible, giving the scenes a more curled-up and ornate appearance. Numerous in-jokes were placed into the signage on the street sets as well, including Statler and Waldorf, uh, Mickle Whites, which is Michael Caine's real surname, and Duncan and Kenworthy's, named after Fraggle Rock producer Duncan Kenworthy. Due to the extensive blending of human and Muppet cast members, the sets all featured numerous pits to accommodate the puppeteers, with Caine and other actors having to carefully traverse a series of planks over them to walk through the scene. The film begins with Gonzo the Great, played by Dave Goles, in the role of author Charles Dickens, accompanied by Rizzo the Rat, Steve Whitmire. Goles said, Jerry Jewell saw me kind of growing as a performer. At the same time, he was writing the movie with Kirk Thatcher and wanting the Dickens narration to somehow be in the movie because it was so beautiful. He didn't want to use a voiceover because it was an intrusion. Suddenly it occurred to him that if Gonzo could play the part of Charles Dickens, he could be the Greek chorus in the movie as well. 
This was the most prominent role for, to date for Gonzo in a Muppet movie, and heralded a sort of mini-renaissance for the character, culminating in 1999's Muppets from Space. Here, as in Muppet Treasure Island, which was the next film they made, Gonzo is paired with Rizzo throughout the film. The Muppets seem to work well as double acts, typically performed by Jim Henson and Frank Oz. Think of Kermit and Piggy, or Kermit and Fozzie, or Sesame Street's Ernie and Bert, or The Swedish Chef and the Hands of the Swedish Chef. Most of the best pairings of Muppets through the 1970s and 1980s were the work of the same two performers. And with Christmas Carol, there's sort of a generational change. Frank Oz takes a back seat in this production with only small roles for his signature characters. And the focus in terms of the Muppet performances has really shifted to Goals and Whitmire. And I think it's fair to say that Gonzo and Rizzo are one of the best parts of this film. They get most of the funny lines and bounce back and forth between which one is the comic character and which one is the straight man. They also serve a valuable purpose in lightening the film's tone. A Christmas Carol is, above all else, a ghost story, and Henson doesn't shy away from translating the book's creepier aspects to the screen. It's kind of difficult to imagine, actually, the Jim Henson company making the Muppet Christmas Carol in the manner that it did without it having made things like the Dark Crystal and Labyrinth first. So when Gonzo introduces Ebenezer Scrooge, the film launches into the first of its six musical numbers, called Scrooge. As noted above, the film's songs were composed by Paul Williams. Williams said, I wrote the words and music and recorded all the stuff with Chris Caswell, who's been my music director for years. We did a very almost Beatles-esque, not rock and roll, but the versions we did weren't extremely Christmassy. When executive producer Robert Kraft got involved, he wanted it to be more traditionally Christmas, so we brought in Miles Goodman to do the underscoring and also to augment all of my arrangements. It was a good move, I think. He did beautiful, beautiful work. When Scrooge reaches his offices, the film introduces his clerk, Bob Cratchit, played by Kermit the Frog, played by Steve Whitmire. It's an oddly understated performance and melancholic for Kermit, lacking the arm-flailing bursts of exasperation that made the character so iconic in the past. I think it's a testament to both the strength of the character and also Whitmire's puppeteering that Kermit works so well in this role. This was Whitmire's second performance as Kermit the Frog, although his first in The Muppet Celebrate Jim Henson was little more than an extended cameo. Whitmire had struggled to accept the role of Kermit the Frog, having assumed after Jim Henson's death that the puppet would be assigned to his son Brian. He said, Heather Henson arranged for a Kermit to be sent to me in Atlanta so that I could fiddle around with it for a little bit. I remember taking the puppet out of the box and the puppet smelled like Jim. I don't even know what that was about. It smelled like Jim. It really did. I took this puppet and I put it on. And I had Kermit on before while fooling around in the shop, but I had never performed him. So I put him on and I was standing in front of a mirror and I held him up and I sort of had him turn around to me. And I got this sense of his voice in my head of Kermit saying, come on, I need to talk. Do a voice. I couldn't do it. I just took the puppet off, set it on a shelf in another room and I didn't touch it for almost a month. Speaking of his work in Christmas Carol, Whitmire said, It was a real challenge for me, because not only was it Kermit, it was Kermit playing another character, so he couldn't just be Kermit, it couldn't just be a copy of Jim. The most important aspect of doing Kermit was that we wanted him to continue on, and while he needed to be the same character, he needed to not just be a parroted copy of what what Jim did, otherwise he'd just become a corporate icon. Scrooge's opening scene pulls no punches in representing the character as cruel, mean-spirited and vindictive. He insults his visiting nephew Fred, played by Stephen McIntosh, and he rudely rebuffs two gentlemen seeking charitable donations, played by the Muppets Bunsen, Honeydew and Beaker. He even hurls an unwanted Christmas wreath at a begging bean bunny, played by Steve Whitmire. Jerry Jewell writes some exceptional dialogue for Scrooge in this scene, so effective that it's easy to assume that it's all directly drawn from Dickens. You could almost say, Scrooge tells Cratchit, that Christmas is the foreclosure season, harvest time for the moneylenders. 
Once Scrooge departs for home, Kermit and his rat co-workers close up the office before entering the film's second musical number, One More Sleep Till Christmas. It's a typical sort of warm, upbeat song for which Kermit the Frog seems best suited. And it's also a short, for a short while it's a relief from the bleak undertones of the film so far. But that relief doesn't really last because the song's final shot is of a shivering bean bunny bedding down in garbage. Even in its brighter moments, this film keeps leavening them with darkness. At the end of the musical number, Kermit watches a shooting star fly across the sky. That shot was a deliberate reference to an identical shot in the Muppet movie where Kermit sees a shooting star over the Mojave Desert. And this shot will be repeated in both Muppet Treasure Island and Muppets from Space. When Scrooge returns home, he's confronted by the ghosts of his former business partners, Jacob and Robert Marley, represented by the Muppets Statler and Waldorf. In Dickens' novel, there's only one Marley in the story, Jacob. Casting Statler and Waldorf in the role necessitated creating a second Marley, named Robert in reference to the singer Bob Marley. Statler and Waldorf had originally been played by Jim Henson and Richard Hunt, so for this film the roles were taken on by Jerry Nelson and Dave Goles. It's worth considering, as Statler and Waldorf sing to Michael Caine about how they're condemned to suffer for all eternity in hell for their mistreatment of others in life, that this is almost certainly the bleakest and most dark Muppet production ever made. Its tone, while littered with brilliant flashes of comedy, ranges from this bleak melancholy to genuine emotional upset. It's easy to think of the movie in tandem with all of the other Muppet productions before and since, and just not fully appreciate how distinctive a film this is. The Marley's warn Scrooge that he's going to be visited by three ghosts, and the first, the ghost of Christmas past, arrives as the bell tolls one o'clock. Initial plans for the film had the three ghosts be played by pre-existing Muppet characters, with Fozzie representing the past, Miss Piggy the present, and Gonzo the future. As the screenplay developed away from the parody take, the ghosts were re-envisaged as completely original characters. They remain puppets, but they're more akin to the characters seen in Jim Henson's fantasy film and television works than the ones in the Muppets. So the ghost of Christmas past is represented as a small red-haired girl and was operated inside a specially constructed 10-foot-long tank in order to give the puppet this eerie floating appearance. Scenes were initially shot with the puppet immersed in baby oil, but when the viscosity prevented the character's clothes from billowing sufficiently, the oil was replaced with water. Matters were further complicated when it was discovered the glue used to put the puppet together actually dissolved in the water. The Ghost of Christmas Past takes Scrooge by the hand and flies him over London, eventually arriving in the past at his childhood school. The flight over London was achieved with a combination of blue screen footage of Michael Caine in a wire harness and the same intricate London models that had been used for the film's opening titles. These miniature sets, which also included a snowy forest for the ghost's descent to Scrooge's school, were constructed by a 20-person team at the Jim Henson Creature Shop and supervised by David Sharp. These sets were built in multiple connected sections so they could easily be slid in and out of place to accommodate a moving camera. Scrooge and the ghost moved quickly from his childhood to his first job, working as an accountant for the rubber chicken manufacturer Fozzywig, played by Fozzie Bear, played by Frank Oz. It's one of the film's few concessions to the Muppets, I think, over and above Dickens, and it's an excuse for the film to squeeze in cameos from the Muppet Show's Electric Mayhem Band, as well as the Swedish chef and Ralph the Dog. Ralph's single appearance in the film here marked his first appearance on screen since Jim Henson had died. The character doesn't speak because no Muppet performer had managed to duplicate Henson's voice to their satisfaction. Scrooge sees his younger self, played by an eerily well-cast Raymond Coulthard, strike up a romance with a young woman named Belle, Meredith Braun. The ghost then transports him to the day when Belle broke off her engagement with the young Scrooge. She breaks up with him in the most heartbreaking of ways, through song. When Love is Gone is a rather strange number for a number of reasons. Primarily it's because it's 
really is sad in the most unremitting and unexpected of fashions. It's also a song by one human to another, with Gonzo and Rizzo being the only Muppets to appear in the scene. By the song's end, the elder Scrooge is visibly grief-stricken and badly affected by what he has seen. There's a raw element to Kane's performance that you don't typically see in a children's film. I'm not trying to claim it's award-worthy, but like much of his performance here, it's a cut above the usual standard for this kind of movie. And perhaps the strangest aspect of the song is that despite being a critical part of Scrooge's journey through the film, it's not in the film at all. The head of production for Walt Disney Pictures, Jeffrey Katzenberg, insisted that When Love Is Gone was excised from the film, arguing that its slow pace and adult themes would just bore the children in the audience. Brian Henson vigorously defended the song, since it formed a major step in Scrooge's character development. Ultimately, however, Henson lost the argument, and the song didn't appear in the finished film. A rather abrupt edit in the theatrical cut revealed where it was supposed to have been. That edit's finally been smoothed over with music in the recent Blu-ray edition. In an unexpected turn of events, though, When Love Is Gone was edited back into the film for the VHS video release in 1993, but then edited back out again for all subsequent home video releases. To add to the problems regarding the song's removals, the film's climax segues into a song, When Love Is Found. It's a companion song to the one that was cut that demonstrates that the humanity Scrooge abandoned when Belle left him has finally been restored. So in effect, the Muppet Christmas Carol concludes with a reference to a song that the audience didn't hear or see. Two other songs were written for the film and recorded in a music studio, but they were edited from the film before commencement of principal photography. These were Chairman of the Board, a song for Sam the Eagle to sing to the young Scrooge in primary school, and There's Room in Your Heart for Love, a song sung by Bunsen, Honeydew and Beaker when attempting to get a charitable donation in Scrooge's office. While they showcased the the respective Muppet characters, these songs didn't build on the film's narrative, so I don't think it was a difficult decision to remove them. At the stroke of two, Scrooge is visited by the Ghost of Christmas Present. One of Brian Henson's early concepts for this character was to make it an enormous Muppet using blue screen composites and visual effects. That plan was abandoned due to costs, but the ghost does make his debut at his intended size before shrinking to slightly larger than human height. The shrinking effect was achieved by shooting the macro puppet, effectively a man in a suit with an electronically operated puppet head, against a black background and then tracking the camera away from it, and then compositing that shot with a background plate shot on the Scrooge's house set. This ghost takes Scrooge to two residences on Christmas morning, that of his nephew Fred, and then his employee, Bob Cratchit. The first scene, where Scrooge is forced to watch a 20 questions parlour game in which he's the cruel punchline, is an intentionally awkward scene. It helps to overcome one of the perennial struggles of Christmas Carol adaptations. How do you make Scrooge sympathetic? In the case of the Muppet version, it's primarily by watching him suffer terribly and then feel sympathy towards him. Scrooge and the ghost move on to the Cratchit residence, with Mrs. Cratchit played by Miss Piggy played by Frank Oz. When it came to depicting the Cratchit family, lengthy debate ensued over their four children. What exactly did the offspring of pigs and frogs look like? After considering making puppets that blended the looks of Kermit and Miss Piggy together, the decision was made to simply make the girls pigs and the boys frogs. A much simpler solution. The daughters Belinda and Bettina were performed by Steve Whitmire and Dave Goles, with both puppeteers taking the opportunity to lampoon Frank Oz's long-running betrayal of Miss Piggy. The older son Peter was puppeteered by David Rudman. For the younger son, the crippled Tiny Tim, Kermit the Frog's nephew Robin was used, plays, played as always by Jerry Nelson. I was never really happy with my Tiny Tim, Jerry Nelson admitted. I felt like I could have done so much better than that. Nelson is incidentally very wrong. His performance as Tiny Tim is perfectly pitched and highly appealing. When Bob and Tim walk home, it's via a striking shot of a full body shot of Cratchit walking with his son on his shoulder. Visual effects supervisor Paul Gentry said, It was the first shot in which Kermit was ever seen walking without any visible means of support. 
I had a treadmill ideal that would ena- uh, idea that would enable the puppeteers to connect Kermit to a surface and make it appear as if he was walking up a sloped street. In London, I happened to find the elliptical rolling drum that had been used for the revolving earth shots in Superman. So by combining a shot of Cratchit walking along a rolling drum against a blue screen with a pre-recorded shot of the model houses, the illusion was completed. It remains a stunning little piece of imagery. Through the entire present sequence, the ghost of Christmas present is seen to gradually age. His his hair changes from scene to scene, from a deep red to grey and ultimately white. While this aspect of the character is in the book written by Dickens, The Muppet Christmas Carol is one of the few film adaptations that incorporates it. The ghost leaves Scrooge alone in the churchyard for his final encounter, the ghost of Christmas yet to come. It's the darkest sequence of the film so far, so dark in fact that Gonzo and Rizzo make a joke about it being too scary and actually bow out until the film's climax. It's important that they leave, since this final sequence works by being as bleak, grim and frightening as its child-friendly audience can handle. The Ghost of Christmas Yet to Come was initially received as a humorous character, with one of the ideas being having Gonzo play it with his nose prominently poking out of the hood. With the more traditional take on the story, it instead becomes a hooded Grim Reaper figure, albeit slightly exaggerated to fit in with the Muppet aesthetic. Scrooge is escorted through a near-future vision where thieves and fences haggle over his possessions, businessmen joke about his funeral, and Tiny Tim has died. It remains the only time a Muppet character has been seen to die, another sign that A Muppet Christmas Carol is such a distinct and unusual film in the Muppet canon. People don't really think about this one. Like, a Muppet dies in this film. That's really not what you think of when you think of Muppets. The ghost and Scrooge's supernatural journey through his future was enhanced by a series of computer-generated transitions, and these were produced by the computer film company. Due to the truncated post-production schedule, about a third of the effect shots in the film, there were 90 of them in total, were handed over to composite image systems in Los Angeles to ensure the movie was completed on schedule. At the journey's end, the ghost shows Scrooge his own grave, at which point a panicked and repentant Scrooge finds, him safe, finds himself safe and well back in his bedroom on Christmas morning. And he immediately sets out to make amends and celebrate Christmas with his peers via a rather unexpected route. Michael Caine's singing. My singing has surprised everyone, admitted Caine, including me. I've never had any lessons in my life. Paul Williams tailored Thankful Heart to Kane's limited range, but even with that in mind, it's a song Kane speaks more than he sings, makes for a heartfelt and pleasant, but very slightly awkward kind of end. The Muppet Christmas Carol remains one of the most significant Muppet productions, not only because it followed on the heels of Jim Henson's death, but also because it demonstrated an additional range and versatility to the characters. So if the collected Muppet productions from, say, Sam and Friends through to the creation of The Muppet Show can be considered the first phase of the Muppet franchise, and the period from The Muppet Show through to the early Disney-produced TV specials the second, then The Christmas Carol absolutely heralds the commencement of the third. In the subsequent years, the Henson team supervised another two feature films, Muppet Treasure Island for Disney and Muppets from Space for Columbia Pictures, as well as the short-lived weekly series Muppets Tonight and several TV and direct-to-DVD specials. Characters like Kermit and Fozzie Bear took something of a backseat in favour of Gonzo and Rizzo, and later the Pepe the Prawn character introduced in Muppets Tonight. It successfully demonstrated that, even with Jim Henson's passing, the Muppets could continue. Brian Henson said, Muppet Christmas Carol came at, obviously, a really sensitive time for me, because my dad had just died, and it was the first thing we were doing with the Muppets. Our wounds were raw, said Dave Goles. Jim and Richard were very spiritual, and this project was about the ultimate spiritual journey. And going back to work together did feel like a rebirth. 